Hello, faithful listener. My name is Aaron, and I'm the audio engineer for the Mestizo podcast. As you know, it's been two weeks since we last published an episode. Given the circumstances here in the U.S., we thought it best to pause, to lament, and to join brothers and sisters protesting the murder of George Floyd. While we certainly do not want to detract from the much-needed attention on police brutality and racial inequality, we decided it is time to continue our normal posting schedule. Since this episode was recorded in early March, it does not directly confront the issue at hand, but we added links in the show notes for information on how you can get involved. Some of our other World Outspoken content deals more directly with race in America. You may want to check out our Hidden Histories collection to learn more. We stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters, and, as is consistent with the biblical voice, we'll always strive for the vindication of the oppressed. We appreciate you joining with us in that journey. Thanks for listening. For now, let's continue on with our conversation today. Bienvenidos al Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. On this podcast, we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing an ethnic church in el siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla and la Dra. Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando here on the Mestizo Podcast. It's part of who we are. On this episode, we examine the way Latinos use the local church as an organic seminary. We explore the importance of El Instituto, asking what makes them unique and invaluable for ethnic churches. We are joined by celebrated church historian and theologian Dr. Justo Gonzalez, author of the highly praised three-volume History of Christian Thought, and books like Mañana, Christian Theology from a Hispanic Perspective, and Santa Biblia, The Bible Through Hispanic Eyes. He also wrote The History of Theological Education, making him the perfect person to speak into what we're addressing today. Dr. Justo Gonzalez shares with us the challenges facing traditional theological education and the way the Institute presents a new way forward. Join us as we listen to Dr. Justo Gonzalez. Justo, Dios te bendiga. Bienvenido al Mestizo Podcast. How are you today? Gracias. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, uh, you know, I, I, like everybody else, uh, hiding away here in isolation, but generally fine. Yes. <laughs> Hiding in isolation, indeed. This has become a, a kind of Armageddon-looking kind of thing. Well, there's a great important tradition in the Christian tradition of the importance of solitude also. Yeah. Perhaps we might use this time for recovering some of that also. Amen to that. Elizabeth, are you hunkered down in, in Michigan? I am, and I'm in my pajamas because um, it's not every day that you get to save the planet by being home in your pajamas. <laughs> well, that's a very nice way to save the planet. It's comfortable, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I've been recording studio videos for for my uh, students, and I've been wearing hoodies and hanging out. It's been really comfortable, actually. Though the grocery store experience, I went to the grocery store what two days ago. The grocery store experience was kind of terrifying. Not gonna lie to you. <laughs> well, it was it was interesting because at my grocery store, they're telling everybody to do um, social distancing and people look like airplanes with their hands out, making sure no way distance between themselves <laughs> and others. Yeah, <laughs> I saw a picture of a lady walking around with a measuring tape already stretched out to six feet and just holding it out in front of her. It was a wild thing. <laughs> so anyways, uh we are here to talk about theological education, especially among Hispanics and other immigrant or minority communities. Uh, we have the privilege of having you, Justo, with us. I thought I'd start by telling a story about my own experience. Before teaching at Moody, I actually worked in admissions for several years, and part of my task was recruiting Hispanic students to, uh, to come to Moody. And one of the difficulties I ran into, well, I ran into a couple difficulties. Uh, one was something that I heard my grandmother say to me when I decided to come to Moody. Uh, she would say, ten cuidado con el mucho estudio, right? She, she was weary of too much study. Uh, the other thing that I ran into, not just with parents or older, uh, older family members who were guiding the young people who were thinking about college, but the other thing I ran into was students believing that moving away to go to a Bible college or a seminary wasn't really the way to do it. 
that, that there had to be some kind of grounding with the local church. And on some level, I think I learned something about my own tradition by stepping away from it and joining something new. By being a part of Moody, I think I learned more about the Hispanic church and some of our values related to training, not just theologically, but ministerially, training pastors uh, to take on leadership at the church. And so I thought we might talk this episode about what that other method is, or other methods, plural, uh, for theological training, for pastoral training among Latinos, and likely among other, other uh, minority or ethnic churches. And I thought, Justo, you might help us by framing what models may be out there, the popular or significant models that have led immigrant churches for many, many years. Could you maybe speak to the models that exist? Well, there are many, many different kinds of models. Let me begin by saying that what you said about your grandmother telling you, unfortunately, still you hear quite a bit about don't go there because they're going to quitar la fe. And so, and unfortunately, I, there are some few pastors still in the Latino churches who say that to their parishioners. I'm afraid sometimes it's a main means of control, but that's another issue that we can deal with some other, some other time. Uh, but uh, w when it comes to, to models, I think one of the things that's happening in, in teaching throughout the world today, in discussion about teaching, has to do with uh, a new view of the relationship between theory and practice. For many years, at the time of the Enlightenment, we thought that you first learn a whole lot and then you do it. Uh, and uh, we have found out that that doesn't always work. Actually, that hardly ever works. <laughs> the best way to learn is to, uh, to learn and do, and then by what you do, you correct what you learn, and you come back and you learn again, and you keep on working back and forth, and you, have, you make your mistakes. Somebody makes sure that your mistakes are not dangerous to other people. I mean, you don't want a doctor to come and try you out, try something out on you without somebody making sure that they're doing the right thing. But, but it, it, it's no longer the notion that first you learn all the theory and then you do all the practice. So much of uh, traditional seminary education is based on that other model. And to this day, still, there are many churches that would not allow a person to even stand in the pulpit or preach or anything before they have gone through all their training. But there's also a, a, a sense in which that is what the Latino church has always been doing. And as a matter of fact, that's what the ancient church always did. What do you mean? The, the action, reflection, kind of doing those things step by step or kind of like a bit of a two-step two dance? Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I, I think it's a, almost like a circle, like a spiral. You start at the center and you, you turn around and, and as you turn around, you come back to a place that looks at the beginning, but it isn't the same thing. Uh, you know, sure. So I, the way I, I tend to illustrate that is a screw. If you look at a screw from one side, uh, it's it, uh, you know, from the head, uh, it looks like it always does the same thing all over and over again. But you look at it from the other direction, you see that it's moving. It's progressing forward, yeah. And so, and so that, that's what I mean. You, 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 you learn, uh, you practice. By practicing, you learn. By learning, you get new ideas about practice, and you keep on doing that. Church, I think the church has always been doing that. As a matter of fact, the church has always been doing that because the church in its best times has understood that baptism is already an ordination for ministry. Sure. Every Christian has a ministry. And so uh, it's not, I baptize you, and then when you study and learn a whole bunch of other stuff, then you're going to be, a, oh, no, it's, it's the very fact of being baptized already places you in, in ministry. Yeah. Justo, can I ask, since this has been custom practice for the Latino church for so long, maybe talk to me about how you ended up pursuing further training. Did you start at a church where you had maybe a grandmother or a person telling you, ooh, ten cuidado con el mucho estudio? Uh, did you did you push forward beyond that, or or were you encouraged to pursue the training that you pursued? Not a grandmother, but a pastor. A pastor Tell us that story. Exactly, exactly those words, and, and and this was in Cuba. And interesting enough, it was a missionary. Oh wow! From abroad from the U.S. who who was bringing to us that idea. Now he had been in seminary. That's what I mean by means of control. He had been to seminary, and that that was good for for. His, for him, but not 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 for the for the church that he 
was pastoring. So yes, wow. yes, that, that that's very much so. Now, um, I don't really know what brought me to higher theological education. I think what it was was a desire for for practicing ministry. And then I went to seminary in Cuba, and eventually when I was in seminary in Cuba, the church decided I had to study more, and they sent me to someplace else and so on. But uh, I don't know, I didn't even know that I like the word higher. Uh, uh, I, I wish so I could give me some other word, but that, that's not the best word, I think. Sure. It implies that there's a sort of a, of a, of an, a, a ladder that you're supposed to climb, or that, or that somehow somebody who does certain things uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's more effective in ministry and so on than somebody who doesn't do those things. Yeah. But what, what I prefer is to talk about in, in terms of how at every stage of theological education, there's a ministry. And yeah. at every stage, there's, they're dangerous that may, will lead you either away from ministry or into a, 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 a wrong sort of ministry. Sure, sure. That each stage has its own skill sets that need to be developed or evolved. Uh, Elizabeth, you you have a thought on that? Well, one of the things that Justo has said is very important in that in that circle or that spiral, and that is that one has an actual opportunity to do some reflecting and some uh, talking out loud with others about one what one has learned. Um, that used to happen more because people hung out together more because mentoring was more of the model that was used uh, and that is still kind of used in the Latino context. But now people are much busier. So even though somebody says that they're mentoring you, uh, you don't really have the opportunity um, unless you do something, unless you they, they catch you doing something like really wrong and they don't want you going that way, then they say, oh, you know, ten cuidado, like they don't, don't go down that way, do this instead of that, you know. But other than that, if it looks like you're doing okay and that you really are learning, there isn't much given to how one is doing the learning, right? So I think that that piece is missing, even though it's a really good part of what that practice uh, ended up being. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I find something interesting that both of you have mentioned. Elizabeth, you just talked about the mentoring and Justo, he, he, he slipped it in, but he said, the church thought I should go get more education. And so there was someone who was, who was pressing, and maybe Justo, you can tell us more about that, but it seems like there is a more uh, direct relationship between the church and those that get uh, encouraged to pursue, uh, pursue education and training for leadership. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I think that... Uh... You know, I have promoted mentorship for a long, long time, but I think I would want to put a little, little pinch of a different notion there. Mentorship is also partnership. And, and what I mean is very often we understand by mentoring being a sort of a part-time teacher that somebody comes to see you once in a while to see what, you know, to see what you're doing. But, but one, the way that mentorship takes place so often in the Latino church is that a pastor takes somebody to go visiting with them. And they go visiting with two or three youth, and those two or three youth will see how, how the pastor does things, and and they comment on it, and they talk about it, and then and then they say something in that visit, and then the pastor tells them, you know, when you said that, you be careful because so you you, you have that, that sort of partnership. It's, it's a mentoring relationship, but it's not what we often understand by mentoring, meaning by that a sort of a a part-time teacher that comes in and, and, and tells you a few things about it. Yeah. I wonder if I could read uh, Manuel Ortiz. He's a very important scholar and pastor who's written many books. Uh, he tries to name this partnership process that you've described, Justo. I thought I could read it for us, his quote where he describes this process. And then maybe we can talk about the uniqueness of this process, because on some level, it sounds quite similar to what the African-American church calls the armor bearers who go along with the pastor who, who joined them in ministry. And so in ma many ways, this might resonate with other expressions of church that have something similar. And then there are other things that might be unique and treasures of the Latino church that we could point people to and say, hey, these things can be replicated and could be to the benefit of the broader church. So let me read that and then we'll, we'll, pick, a, we'll pick it apart, tease it out and see what, what treasures we find, okay? Um, but Manuel Ortiz says this, he says that the route usually begins, this is for future leaders of the church, he says, the route usually begins by potential leaders 
proving themselves in the local church while becoming, quote, faithful members. I wonder if we could tease out what that means. The pastor pays closer attention to these individuals, considers them to be dependable, and entrusts them with additional responsibilities. They may teach, work with youth, lead services, coordinate ministries, and preach periodically. The training takes place while doing ministry. The need for education is triggered by actual hands-on involvement. Eventually, the mother church formally affirms their calling, ordains them, and establishes an, an independent ministry for them to lead. In some ways, I remember that being my process, though I didn't realize that that was what was happening. Uh, the pastor took me along. He had me start teaching Sunday school classes after he had taught me a book. And then eventually he said, hey, you should pursue more training. And I ended up pursuing it here at Moody. But I didn't know that that was what was happening. So I wonder, Elizabeth, maybe you can talk us through your story. How did you end up uh, pursuing the training that you pursued? Who encouraged you? Did you have a church affirm you the way that Husto talked about the church pushing him to education? Well, uh, let's talk about the fact that the two of you are men and that I'm a woman in the church. Fair point. Right, because that, uh, that changes the picture a little bit, right? Absolutely. I happen to be very fortunate that in my church, although there were persons who um, believed that a woman only had uh, certain ministries that she could be placed in, the pastors did believe in uh, women being pastors. And that was what I always felt that I wanted to do from the time that I was a very young girl. I was seven years old. So, I mean, you know, that, that was it. That was just, uh, I came wired that way. So uh, my mother was very smart and she said to me, no le digas esto a nadie, porque no todo el mundo está preparado para aceptar eso, right? And instead, she was my first mentor. What she taught me was the spiritual discipline of prayer and meditation. Yeah. And young men, uh, my first Sunday school teachers were all women, even into adult life. Um, my, uh, first by, I did, I was a part of an MAE church and I did one of those youth Bible competition things. I was maybe 16 and my mentor through that process was an older woman at the church. And we would twice a week meet to study the book of Isaiah. My first Bible study ever in my life was me and this older, older woman from the church who would help me walk through the book of Isaiah. So I think you're absolutely right. There are older women who, because of constraints, uh, might not be called pastors, but it's certainly helping with ministries and preparing people for, for certain objectives. And I, I certainly found that to be true in my life. And then the, the, the place for moving one towards um, more formal learning, right? This is an informal learning, if, if we want to put it that way, toward more formal learning, is when one comes to the place where uh, the people have decided as a community that more or less uh, two things have happened, that they've taught you what they can, um, that you truly are called for this ministry and therefore that you need to move on to do uh, further training. And where that further training takes place for you has to do with what church you've been a part of, right? I was a part of a mainline church and therefore further training for me was to go to a seminary. But the Bible Institute was considered to be more for laypersons. And um, they said, no, you are ready to go on for, for the training. Also, it had to do with whether you were first or second generation and how to manage uh, the English language. So it, it has to do with the vision of leaders and uh, what are the rules for ordination. Eventually for ordination, I would need to have a, an MDiv in my particular tradition. So all of those things have to do with how it is that these two worlds, the Latino world and the uh, Anglo world of which we are a part, and how the uh, nations are working out, etc., how all of that plays out. Justo, do you think that creates a problem or distancing between the first and second generation of the church? I know that those who go to these informal Bible institutes, or maybe we should say, I guess, non-accredited, and I say that entre comillas, um, but uh, these Bible institutes that are local to the church, uh, Elizabeth just pointed out, interestingly enough, that uh, the first generation, the Spanish speakers usually end up there in the Bible Institute. And those that can speak English or, or invited are invited to go off to, to seminary. I wonder if that creates some distance in a number of ways. Maybe the ones who are Spanish speakers end up taking on leadership at a faster clip. And then the ones who leave end up, I don't know, is there a distance created? Can you talk us through that? 
Yeah, you know, first of all, I think we have to clarify a little bit what we mean by Bible Institutes. Yes, please. Because uh, Bible Institutes are basically the adult uh, Sunday school class, uh, or perhaps that class that meets another time of day or the week also, or something like that. But basically, are an institute, a program designed to create leaders for that particular church yeah. and to develop them. And they might have 20, 30, 40 people who are developing in those for that particular church. And that's, that's good. Then there are uh, Bible institutes uh, that, for instance, some denominations, some of the Pentecostal denominations have those Bible institutes that are supported by the institute. And, and, and some of them are residential places. I mean, some of them are places where you go to live. Uh, others are not, others, especially in urban areas, some of them are places where people go, but you have a uh, kind of Bible Institute. So I think we have to be clear exactly what we mean. If we are talking about the Bible Institute that's designed to train uh, new pastors and other leaders, or that sort of leaders, uh, not necessarily for this particular local church, but in general for the church at large. Uh, then I think that, yes, there's a possibility of uh, quite a bit of distancing, so I, I think that the distancing is there, yes, but it's a distancing that takes place also. It is also because too often we model the church after the corporations of of our society, you know, the, the, the big companies and so on. And people are supposed to move up, supposedly. I don't know what that means in the church. Uh, I thought in the church, the more you move down, the higher you are. But that's another question. <laughs> I think that Hutto is right. He's he's pointing to a, a really important piece here, and that is one of the things that helped me when I was in seminary is um, I was already an associate pastor at my church. So, and I, I had been bivocational, and I was expected to go to seminary. I went from New York City to Philadelphia, and then I would return um, every Friday. By Friday evening, I was teaching uh, again at my church. And Saturday, we had all days activities, you know, we had music, we had all kinds of things going on in the community. And then Sunday, you know, we had several um, services and youth and you know, all kinds of things. And then uh, Sunday night, very late, I would return to Philadelphia. And I did that for three years. And what made it worthwhile was that when I returned to my church on weekends, the pastor and I would have opportunities to reflect on the things that I had been learning. So that I didn't have to feel like these two worlds were apart from each other. Even though in many ways they were very much apart from each other. There was uh, certain ways of practicing um, the ministries of the church that were not very contextualized to how I would need to do it in the Latino context, right? Um, so the pastor and I had, had opportunities to talk about that. And I remember that because we had those conversations, my notes at, for seminary were a page that I folded in two. On one part, I took notes of what the lectures were about. On the other part, I took notes of all the ideas that were percolating in my mind about how I was going to be uh, putting this into practice in the ministry, mm. right? Uh, which many times between the two, there was uh, a place where I was translating uh, from one context to the other, right? Um, so that was taking place, but I had the opportunity to speak with a pastor about those pieces and to not feel the divide between the different contexts. And that's not everybody has that. Yeah, I find that to be exceptional uh, in 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 both senses of the word exceptional in that it strikes me as an exception to the rule and exceptional in the fact that I think it's outstanding that your pastor was able to do that and that you had the proximity between the seminary and your church to stay an embedded young leader. Uh, Elizabeth, I know in a previous episode, you had mentioned that uh, when we had Agustin Quiles on to talk about justice, you talked about how uh, for Hispanics, theological education is an embedded practice that, that, that it has to stay with young leaders staying present in the church. Uh, Agustin even made a call, an invitation for young leaders to return to the Hispanic church, those who have gone on to seminary. And so I think it, that this embeddedness is important to uh, Hispanic churches as they, as they think about Latino churches, as they think about theological training for their young people. Uh, embeddedness is part of that. I know that when I left and moved from Florida to Chicago, part of the 
uh, restoration process that needed to take place between my relationship with my home church was the fact that I'd moved so far away that I was no longer embedded. And they, they interpreted that as a kind of, I guess, a kind of rejection, maybe. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but a kind of distancing that said, okay, he chose that road instead of, instead of staying connected to us. And that was very hard. I, I had to, again, I, I think I learned more about my tradition when I stepped out of it than when I was embedded in it. Um, but but it, was, it was hard to see that. And so I wonder, for both of you, Husto, maybe we can start with you. What are some of those other uh, implicit um, objectives that, that are accomplished among Hispanics as we prepare, as we train up those leaders who are going to lead us theologically as well as pastorally? What are, what's the curriculum, as it were, for Hispanics? What are some of those curricular objectives that you think are, are common to us? Well, Elizabeth is much more especially in curricular than I am, but let me just, <laughs> let me just say that, uh, uh, and I have said that before, and I may get people tired of hearing it, but this is some years ago, many years ago, some 30 years ago, 30 some years ago, when we were beginning to talk about developing special programs for Latinos and Latinas and then, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, and we were trying to get money <clears throat> for uh, doctoral students uh, we used to talk about we have to develop a pipeline we're going to develop this pipeline that's going to find kids in the, in the high school and then get them involved and then they take them to college and through college and then to seminary and eventually to the phd program uh, now i'm i am rather uh, uh, dissatisfied with that image because and i have said this before but forgive me if somebody has heard it already but uh, the purpose of a pipeline is to make sure that nothing leaks in the way. Okay. If a pipeline loses anything along the way, it's a leak, it's, it's a loss, and somebody has to go and fix it. Because you have to get every drop that goes in here has to go out the other end. And, and, and well, whatever happens in the way is just the way. I prefer to talk more about an irrigation hose. One of those are full of holes. I have one back there in my, in my vegetable garden. <laughs> you put it in the ground, and it's, it's intended to leak. Yeah. Husto, what are you growing, by the way? Uh, oh, right now, nothing much because it's too cold. But <laughs> there's a few things out there. There is a, there's saffron and there is oregano and there is rosemary and all kinds of stuff like that. And then there's a juice of chokes. And uh, in a few days, there'll be, in a few weeks, there'll be a bit more. But anyhow. Uh, <laughs> so you put this, this hose uh, out there in the ground. And the, the drop that leaks at the very beginning is not uh, any less valuable than the drop that gets to the very end. Now, you need some drops at the end, you see. So you need some people who go and do their PhD work and so on. I have a Bible here. This Bible is in Spanish. Well, who translated it? Who, who took the time to learn uh, Hebrew and Greek well enough to read manuscripts? Somebody has to do that. And the Latinos, uh, Latino church has an obligation to be part of that contribution also. So that, that's, that's part of it. But then when, when, if you have somebody in your church who's baptized and learns no more than a little bit enough to go and, and, and talk to their neighbors uh, and doesn't learn anything, that's not, that's not a loss. That, that's, that's a mission. That, that the purpose of education is mission. The purpose of education is not just education. At least in the church, that's the way it is. And so if somebody then decides to, that they want to do more and do something else and go a bit further, uh, and at some point they, they go out into the world, that's not a loss. Now, we have to make sure that some drops get to the end. But the drop that gets to the end is no more valuable than, than the drop that, that came out at the beginning. They are all uh, measured by how much they irrigate the land around them. Now, unfortunately, in higher education, there's still a whole lot of the of the uh, pipeline image, you know. Uh, so schools praise, praise themselves, I mean, by, by how many of our students go on into graduate school, you know, uh, uh, and so on. So, uh, so there's a whole lot of that still there. And part of what we have to come back constantly is the pressure that brings to Latinas and Latinos who are trying to do whatever they're doing. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it seems, seems that it creates, creates attention. attention. 
yes, for, the, yes, for the Latino, Latino student. student. Yes, when seminary, you're told, don't do what Elizabeth did. I mean, you're not supposed to go do back, go back there. So you come here and learn. And, and then when, when you finish and you get your PhD, you're told now, we're going to evaluate, but we're not going to evaluate you by what you're doing for the church. We're going to evaluate you by by how impressive your books are and how they're evaluated by other scholars. So there's a whole lot of pressure trying to push you out of there. And part of what the Latino church has to learn how to do is how do we support these people? There, there's, a, there's a mentoring task as a communal task. So that the experience that you talk about coming back and the church saying somehow they have abandoned us. No, what that church has to do is begin to embrace you and saying, uh, you know, We are mentoring you as you move forward into something else. Familia, it's your host, Emmanuel Padilla, with a quick reminder. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review and follow at World Outspoken on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so you never miss Lo Bueno del Mestizo podcast. If you have a question you want us to answer on the show, you can send in your question on the World Outspoken website, following the link in the show notes, or you can call 312-725-2995. That's 312-725-2995. Leave us a 30-second voicemail with your name, city, y pregunta, and we'll discuss it on the last episode of the season. That's it for now. Now let's get back to the episode. One of the things that um, is important is that Bible Institutes have taken on the task of meeting people in a lot of those different places, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, you have certificate programs for the person who wants to learn enough of the gospel to be able to speak to their neighbor, as Sister was just saying. But then you have diploma programs. So the person who began the certificate program but said, oh, wow, I would like to do something more specific. Uh, I've been able to identify a more specific call to what I am doing. And so that person perhaps is going to be working on doing some kind of level of pastoral care or some, uh, they're going to be doing uh, Christian education as uh, the more specific and long-term piece that they're doing. And they need a little bit more than just a certificate program. And then you have those who are going on for ordination and Bible Institutes, you know, will pick that up as well. Um, but then if you're going to go on for that PhD, you really have to uh, move on a different trajectory. And, and there are people who have started in Bible institutes and then they move toward that trajectory. And the good thing about that is that the foundation that you get in a Bible institute helps you to appreciate if it's a good foundation. It helps you to appreciate the church and to always have the church embedded in you as you are moving toward uh, becoming a scholar, because then the uh, questions that you that, that you use in your inquiry are still informed by the church and what it is that the church is doing, right? Those two pieces are always speaking to each other inside of you. You have internalized them and they're speaking to each other inside of you. The secret to all of this is to always have a conversation going on right? That we don't uh, dismiss people, that we don't feel um, a sense of um, insecurity because someone is, is learning something at a particular level. Eh? The, the classism that separates us, the Latino community is big with the classism. So if, if we don't have that uh, getting in the way, This is why I'd say to people, you know, don't call me doctora because at the foot of the cross, we're all the same, right? We all have, you know, same basic needs. Um, but that conversation at the foot of the cross, I think is a very important one. I'm going to see it from a particular place, uh, different than someone else who's looking at it from where they are at in their ministry. And we all really have to listen to each other so that we can mutually inform each other, right? That in itself, is a curriculum. That conversation is in itself a curriculum. And when we are teaching at Bible Institutes to be able to have that conversation in the classroom, to bring as many voices as possible, that's a necessary piece. One of the things that I've been saying as professor at, at uh, seminaries is the same thing, that we need to be able to hear voices from persons who are doing very viable ministry in a lot of different ways and contexts, and that we need to continue to hear those voices. 
now with the Latino community becoming professional and going into other professions, right? This, this, this new generation is going to be, the Z generation is going to be the most educated generation that we have had. What will it mean then for us to have persons who are lawyers, who are working on genetics, who are engineers, etc., and to have them in the church asking questions from their place of, of their profession about ministry, about uh, theology, new questions that are arising for them in those places. Will the church be able to have that kind of conversation or not? That is key right now for the Z generation. If we cannot, if those conversations have to happen outside of the church, then if, if we lose so much, right? The values of the kingdom can move out, be poured out into these new settings. When someone who is an engineer sits at a table to look at a problem and is able to see that problem with the values of, of the Basilea of the kingdom in their mind, they're going to see that in a very different way. They're going to see the value of people as they are being affected by a particular project in new ways that someone else isn't going to look at necessarily. But someone who's doing this from the place of the gospel is going to see people as created in the image of God and will bring to that table a whole other argument that we truly need. Those are ministries as well. And we need to be able to speak into that and to prepare the Z generation to be able to do that. So how do we do that? Is there a historical precedent that we can look at? Is there, are, are there examples of people doing that? Because I, I see two tensions, uh, speaking as the, the young one in the group here, if I may, I see two tensions. Uh, I, 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 trust me, I've been terrified this whole conversation. <laughs> Uh, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got two big ones here in front of me, but, but let me, let me try to tease this out. The, the one tension I see is, um, for those, the thinking of the irrigation metaphor that, that who's still so well developed for us, for those that make it all the way to the end of the hose and are drops at the end, um, Usto has hinted at it, Elizabeth, you've hinted at it, that there's a kind of classism and tension that that creates, right? Uh, when I go home, people ask me, how is it going in, in white Bible college? Or how is it going in, uh, in my white theology school? Uh, my brother tried to implement a, a kind of small group youth Bible study model that I had taught him from, from my education here at Moody. He tried to implement it at his church and his pastor pulled him aside and said, you can't do that here. That's white people stuff. Right. And so, uh, there's a tension, a fear as it were for that, the, the ones who make it to the end of the hose are introducing things to the beginning, as it were, that are, that are not good, that in some ways might be wicked. So that's the first tension I see, right? Uh, push, from, from, push from the ones who didn't make it to the end, they're resisting the ones that did. Uh, but then, well, I, I'm saying that that's the implication that has been, a, the, that's the accusation, right? For... Yeah, uh, literally, that was the accusation of of uh, made of my younger brother, and and for better or worse, they they, they that's what they said, right? Uh, but maybe maybe not. Um, the other tension that I see is is the other way around. Those who make it to the end, saying, "Wait a minute, I don't want to incorporate any of what I learned from the beginning, right? I don't want to incorporate the things I learned when I did instituto or when I was learning with the pastor." I want to abandon those models and stick with what I know now as a doctor, so forth and so on. Uh, so unlike my brother, I went through some of that. Where I said, no, I don't want to do it the way the Latinos have done it in the past. I want to do something new. And so both sides push and pull away from one another. And I wonder if there's something we can do to resolve that. Justo, maybe you have an answer to that question. What do you think? Well, <laughs> I was just thinking about them, many different possible answers. I think uh, it goes both ways, because I think there's also a responsibility for those who teach in Bible institutes uh, to do as much as possible not to teach anything that people will have to unlearn later. Because part of the tragedy of many of the Bible institutes is that people have to unlearn what they learned. How do you at the same time uh, affirm the questions that come out uh, 
of the experience of people in Gaza church. At the same time, you know, make sure that that those questions are informed by the best possible knowledge, the best possible theology, uh, the best historical uh, data, whatever. You know. So bringing bringing those two together, I think, to me, is crucial. And that's that's why I think that the the ATH uh, program that uh, Elizabeth is so much involved with, which is uh, the whole network of uh, theological institutions and so on, and and then the, the process of uh, uh, certifying some Bible institutes as being making people a, you know, being the equivalent of a BA to go into into seminary, are, are fantastic things. But I'm not going to talk about that because that, that's 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 herbally pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was, I'm, I'm going to go into that right now because actually it's uh, it's an issue that we can look at in, uh, three, through three different lenses, right? It's content, it's pedagogy, and it's community. So one of the things that we are doing is creating communities of practice. The other thing that we're doing, and this, this is in, in AED, the Association for Hispanic Theological Education, is that we're dealing with the certification of Bible Institutes. In the certification of Bible Institutes, we're looking at issues of excellence and quality of teaching. That's, you know, content and who's teaching, et cetera. And there are two very important pieces there. That is that everyone who uh, wants to be certified, their uh, professors, their instructors have to be able to have done uh, master's level work in the area in which they are teaching. So that um, opens up the dialogue for those persons who are instructing to then not do what Ruth was saying, which is that they're not teaching things that they need that people need to unlearn, right? So that's you know that's one way to begin to look at that. The other thing is that uh, while they're doing their master's work, they're still embedded in the church. So that the issue of what are the right questions to ask. Um, we are empowering people to come into um, a seminary level education, but even at the onset of saying, this is the, the program that I'm going to uh, negotiate to go to, there's a negotiation between the Bible Institute and the seminary. And that is that um, bishops of the church and so forth that want their leaders to be prepared are saying, okay, so what are you going to teach our people? Because they we don't want our people to go in there and to be uh, part of a program that totally decontextualizes them, right? And miseducates them to a certain degree so that their questions do count when they come in, right? So the way it is doing it is that there's this creation of this network where you have Bible institutes, but you also have seminaries and so forth, and people are talking to each other. And if you want our students, then these are the kinds of things that we want to make sure that you're going to be addressing. And that's a very important piece because it's about the Latino community having a voice at that table. And it's about doing critical thinking on both sides, right? So the pedagogical piece is the critical thinking that we, we need to learn to do. That the way we've educated is to do transmissive thinking, right? Where I just accept everything that you say and the professor accepts that you're going to just take the notes and spit them back out on the exam. So no longer are we looking at that. We need to look at doing critical thinking about whose questions and why the question and, and where does the question take us or not take us and what questions are missing and so on and so forth, right? And that's a different place. I think that seminaries are understanding that they need to go there. And I think that as Latinos, when we come in, we're understanding that we need to be able to voice those pieces in class, that we can't just be passive people sitting around in that class, not knowing who we are or not thinking that we have the ability that we come with something to that table and that we are we, we need to be able to say something at that table, right? And so that conversation, now what you've lifted up is a little bit different too. It is about within the Latino community itself, having two generations and how those different generations uh, feel more comfortable in the questions of one culture versus the question of another culture, right? The way I do that is I have someone from the first generation looking in one direction and back to back with someone from the second generation. And I say, what are you looking at? And that person's looking at something on one side of the room. The other person's looking at something different on the other side of the room. And what we find out is that they're standing in the same place, but one person is looking at where they came from and the other person is looking at where they're going. 
And those are differences. And I think that we need to begin to accept the fact that the Latino community is not this one unified, you know, only one way to look at things. Yeah, Elizabeth, thank you. I, I, I thought that was super helpful. And Justo, I don't want to interrupt the thought. I see that you have a, a thought for us. But I do want to say that one of the things that you teased out, Elizabeth, is the kind of people we create. There's a kind of character formation that needs to be a part of this. I know that uh, among higher education institutions, seminaries, Bible colleges, universities, that's a lot of what's being explored right now, especially for those pursuing theological education. How do we shape the right kind of character? So not how do we just teach the right kinds of things, but how do we make the right kind of person uh, that fits the world that needs ministry, the, the world that needs uh, serving in the kingdom? Who's the Tell us what you're thinking. What's on your mind? Well, <laughs> uh, the, the typical word that's used in this, to express what you're talking about is, is, is formation. And I think uh, that, has, that has to go all the way down to the very beginning of, 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 of Christian education and learning and so on. In many of our in Bible Institute, Bible studies, we started looking for, at the Bible for information. And we want people to learn how many this and how many that, you know, and what are the fruits of the Spirit and this and that. But there's very little about formation. What does it mean for who you are, for who you're going to be, for who this community is? You know, and I think that begins back there and then goes all the way into the whole spectrum of, of uh, theological education. You know, and uh, uh, fortunately, that begins when you preach. Yeah, if you preach that way, people learn to think that way. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, and if you teach that way, also, I mean, so so the the question to me is how do we, from the very beginning, develop a pedagogy that uh, that's not not just a pedagogy, it's a theology, an understanding of the Bible. The Bible is not there to tell me. Uh, what the names of the archangels are, you know. The Bible is to tell me what I'm supposed to do if I'm to go serve the Lord of the archangels, you know. And that's a different, completely different ball, uh, a different, different ball game. Go ahead, preacher. No, but uh, I'm not a good preacher, so I'll make an altar call at the end. <laughs> and collect an offering. <laughs> no, 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 but really, uh, if, if, uh, uh, that's what I mean by not having to unlearn something, you see. Because if we are already formed in a church in which we are told, you know, uh, the important thing about the Bible is that you can uh, uh, recite uh, uh, all the books in order, the very first thing you learn. That's important. You have, you have to know that in order to find things. But but that's not what the Bible is about, you know. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing that I think uh, that I wish we would keep of our traditional Latino uh, background as the generation changes and make that a contribution to the whole church. Because when uh, you know when we talk about the Latino church, I always want to put that in the context of the whole church. The task of the Latino church is not to serve the Latino people. Period. That's right. The task of the, of the Latino Church is supposed to be uh, uh, to proclaim and, and, and practice the life in the kingdom of God uh, for everybody else, and, and, and call the rest of the church in different ways of obedience, if necessary. So, uh, when when we are talking about the the, uh, the this uh, uh, presence of our, of our church. One of the things that, that's very typical of Latino culture is a very important sense of community. Our extended families, you know, where everybody is a tío, entrenado, pariente, whatever, you know, but everybody somehow is part of, of, of the family. Uh, that is the, the vision of the church, also the early church. You see, worship in the early church was not about me, it was not about how I get together with God. It was about the people, how we are made, we are made the people, and how we as the people then serve God. And that people did not have a place. Worship in ancient Israel was not about uh, how do I get the hour to listen to me. That was part of it, but it was also about how are we part of the people of Yahweh. So, uh, now, uh, so, so, uh, uh, and in many ways, the Latino church has that already. 
we have been we have been uh, sort of uh, twisted by all this individualistic stuff that comes from outside, and it's constant pushing us. And suddenly talking about about life is about moving ahead, and obviously moving ahead means stepping on somebody else. You know, uh, 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 how do we get beyond that? How do we go back to those roots? Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that, that the old generation has to has to call these shots. It means that the old generation has something to teach also to the young generation and make sure that, that keeps going. You know? Because if we can make sure that our new generations see that and practice that, then, man, we have quite a contribution to make for the church at large. You know? You know? We, can, we can revolutionize the whole thing. Amen. Amen, Justo. Uh Elizabeth, I have only one more question, and then if you have another question or thought, it's uh, it's all you from here. But but Justo, I, I like to ask uh, all of our invited guests. Uh, we've asked you a lot about a, a specific subject, but we also want to give you a platform. Is there one idea, one thing that we we haven't made space for that you would really love for the church to know, to hear? Uh, one word that you would like to to compel people to consider. Uh, what would that be? Hmm. Well, let me tell you what one of my concerns these days is. Please. It has to do with the formational, educational, but in the sense of formation, character of worship. I think one of the points that I see a great tragedy is that we are losing that sense, you know, uh, of, of, uh, of worship as a place where we... Uh, uh, not only praise, but also become something. And not only repeat, but also learn something. And learn something in that b- deep sense of, of being formed by it. And uh, I see that going by the boards very quickly uh, because of uh, Im- imitating the media, you know, uh, uh, and all kinds of other reasons. And because of a lack of understanding of, of uh, these uh, greater dimensions of worship that we have to keep on reinforcing. So I would recommend, I would suggest that we begin thinking about how do we reform worship. Keep it joy. Keep it, keep it uh, the, the feast of the people of God. Uh, but make sure the people of God are also learning how to serve God. Well, before we turn this into another sermon, let me say, uh, my worship has been deeply shaped and informed. Uh, in some ways, I've rediscovered my Latinidad. Thanks to both of you, Elizabeth and Justo, you have been, uh, though you didn't know me, you had never met me, uh, you were deeply formative to me as I continued my studies in seminary. And so Justo, it's an honor for me to be able to have this conversation, to think through how, my, how I might take the baton, as it were, and, and continue to teach people here at Moody, as well as in uh, the churches that I'm a part of, and through World Outspoken, the ministry that puts together this podcast. It's an honor that we're able to help train pastors and leaders and to expand your voice and to hopefully uh, innovate along the grains of the path that you've already walked. And so thank you for giving us that privilege. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid that now when you do anything that people don't like, I'm going to be blamed for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. You get all the credit, but none of the blame if it goes wrong. (laughs) Bless you. Thank you. Uh, Elizabeth, always thank you. Uh, we're going to continue. Our next episode is a mailbag episode. So if you haven't yet, please submit your questions uh, following the email that you're here, here in the second and the conclusion of the podcast. Send in your questions so that we can, Elizabeth and I, can have a conversation with you about what you've been thinking about this episode of the Mestizo Podcast and others. For now, uh, nos vemos pronto. Bendiciones. Hasta pronto. Igual.